Hear ye, hear ye, come one and all. Join us for a free introductory journey through occult theory and practice. Learn dazzling mysteries, occult sciences, and powerful spells. Heal the sick, curse your enemies, and attract the favor of that sexy human next door. All this can be yours absolutely free. All we ask is that you tune in every other week. Learn what you can and put it into practice. Some side effects may include stress relief, a new outlook on life, and a newfound obsession with small shiny objects. Tune in today. Welcome to the Fool's Guide to the Occult. I'm Kevin. I'm Tyler. And I'm a melted popsicle. And before we get started today, I want to apologize to Tyler and everyone else out there and make a correction from our last episode when we were talking about invoking and evoking a deity or spirit, and Tyler called it evoking, and I corrected him. Technically, he was right. Evoking is when you summon something for divination or uh, an external change in reality, and invoking is when you conjure something to make a change in the magician themselves. Um, it often involves a form of like possession or changing consciousness. And there are two really good sections on this in Libra Null by Peter J. Carroll, who we'll get into a lot more later in this episode and probably a lot more later in the podcast in general. All right. Melted Popsicle, I accept your apology, and I will not hold this over you at some point in the future. Uh-huh. All right. Well, on our last episode, we built the foundation, if you will, for the body of knowledge we are going to be talking about and putting into practice in this series. We also gave our listeners some ideas to take home and practice, which we plan on doing every episode. So we thought it would be fun to talk about some of the journaling we've done since the last episode. Tyler, you want to kick sure. us off? I've started a dream journal as a way of uh, revisiting my earlier attempt at lucid dreaming. Um, I've been writing down details and mostly emotional impressions that I've been left with after waking in the morning since well, since I have cats. is about 2 a.m., 4 a.m., and then again at 6 a.m. So I guess what I'm trying to say is my cats are real dickholes. Um, anyway, I feel like since I've started journaling... I've been able to start to notice more details in my dreams, uh, which are able to let me sort of have that realization that I'm in a dream state, which then leads to lucidity. But because I approach everything magical with a very healthy sense of distrust, this has started to make me question if it's actual awareness that I'm experiencing during my dreams, or if I'm just starting to dream that I'm in control of my dream. Uh, Either way... My next steps are to meditate while I'm falling asleep and see what kind of impact that has. Uh, Kev? I think I want to address some of that later under the concept of the principle of efficacy, where if it's working, should we question it? That's a really good point. Yeah. Mm. So does it matter if you're dreaming that you're in control of the dream or whether you're actually in control of the dream? The end result is it feels like you're in control of the dream. So who's to argue? I guess that's I'm true, but head. what's the difference between, I guess, control and the illusion of control? Is that perception is reality? That's true. Perception yeah. is change reality. Perception change your reality. True. All right, journaling. Um, I have a long, meandering journal entry about a fascinating person that I saw at a Tim Hortons last week to bring things back from the realm of the occult a bit to the realm of the fascinatingly mundane. I, I love watching people do things meticulously 
Uh, I think it's a fascinating insight into their process. So this person, they had a box of Timbits, that's donut holes for the sad and uninitiated, and a cup of coffee. And they took all the Timbits out of the box. There were probably 20, and they sorted them by type. There were powdered sugared ones. There were plain glazed ones, chocolate, uh, regular cake ones, and then a couple others I didn't recognize. Maybe they had cinnamon-dusted ones or jelly-filled ones. I don't know. Anyway, this individual sorted these little hunks of donutty goodness by type, and then they cut them with a fork and knife into six pieces each. So not eight, where you can just cut them in half twice, and it's really convenient, I guess. Maybe that would make the pieces too small. No, 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 no. No, they did them into six. So it was three cuts per tiny donut hole with a plastic fork and knife. And they would do this by section, so like by each flavor. And let me tell you, this was possibly the most talented human I've ever seen with a plastic knife, some kind of like plastic knife prodigy. <laughs> and it was incredible how clean they could cut these stupid little donuts. And once they cut up all the ones of a certain flavor, they would pick them up with the fork and they would dunk them into their coffee one by one and they would eat them. All right, you know, dunking the donut, fine. This is a very involved version of dunking a donut in coffee. The thing that drew my attention to this was the absolute focus this, this person was driven. They were going to make perfect sixths of Timbit, and they were going to dip them in coffee on the end of a fork, and they were going to eat them. And I think I spent like half an hour watching this unfold three tables away from me. And if I could capture a fraction of that laser focus, I would just walk around ready and able to enact ritual at any time of the day or night. It was... It was really amazing, and it changed my entire attitude towards Timbits. Like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to cut my Timbits into perfect sixth and dunk them in coffee. I don't even drink coffee. But I will forever imagine that other people who eat donut holes are able to get so much more than I am out of that experience, to eke so much more fulfillment from that moment in their lives. So I put that in my ritual journal because that level of meticulous detail-oriented, focused work is absolutely the sort of thing that journaling is meant to record. Wow. That's pretty intense for yeah. a story about donuts. Yeah, it's super <laughs> Right. Just a random right. Tim Hortons experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, that's definitely the kind of detail we're talking about. I imagine this sure. happening at like 3 a.m. and then after this person ate those donuts, just like ascended in like a column of light. That would have been really remarkable. It was like 9.15 like I'd just gotten out of my operating systems class wow. and I was heading to work and I was, I had a little bit of time in between. So I just sat down at a tea hose and then I witnessed this and it, it changed that day sure. for me. Let me tell you. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, I did some sigil work a while ago that seems to be more or less going in my favor. Uh, time will tell. I've also been doing some work with thought forums, which has been interesting, but let me keep it to stuff on the level of our last episode, shall I? Yeah, bring it up. All right, so let's see here. Here's one. Date, 11, 12, 18. Time, 9.20 p.m. Location, living room. Conditions, high on cannabis, in pain due to dental work. So I had some teeth drilled, and I was using cannabis to dull the pain. Seems legit. Yeah. Rituals done, relaxation ritual, which we'll cover later today in this episode. And invoking the soul re resonance. Another thing we'll talk about at another point in time. Details. 
relaxation ritual was done using the golden ball of light practice, which again, we'll go to in more detail later on. Uh, it was difficult considering the tooth pain, but doable. From there, I used the invoking the soul resonance ritual. This made me wide awake. Um, I envisioned auras of light of each of the sigils in the uh, ritual, encasing my body during the ritual. I had physical sensation of tightness on my skin, felt electrified. Um, it also cleared my mind like fresh, cleaned window. Basically, everything was crystal clear. I like that image. I like that that visualization of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's easy to understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and when we get to divination, we'll we'll talk about windows a little more. Sure. But anyway, this was followed by uh, zazen meditation, which again is something we'll cover in this episode. And I've been trying to meditate under more difficult circumstances recently. For example, like with the TV on or with uh, that tooth pain. Um, was it I actually like during tried. The drilling? To me- yeah, I tried meditating while the drilling was taking place. That's which hardcore. was <laughs> yeah insane. If you can meditate during that, you can meditate pretty much like you could be like falling out of the sky and be able to meditate. Pretty much. Which might and actually kind be of helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, with a lot of practice, stuff like that is to some degree doable. It was fleeting, but I, I managed to get some moments of, of clear headedness during that. And basically my goal with, with practicing that is to be able to, to, reach gnosis or single pointed points of mind at you know any other point in time but i thought that practicing it in more difficult situations would make it easier in prime conditions Mm -hmm. so just whenever i have some free time go for it just like uh what's his face goku training under all that high gravity and then he's able to come out and just like kick ass i feel like we should all compare ourselves to goku sometimes and you all out there we are on this journey together so we would love it if you would share what you're up to and what journaling you've done with us on social media. So let's start a dialogue and create a community of occultists working together in the spirit of the free sharing of information for the betterment of the craft. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the fool's guide to the occult spelled with a two instead of the, the word two. And from there, we also have a community page called fellow travelers. And that's probably going to be the best place for Saul to engage in a discussion and build a lively online occult community. Mm-hmm. We're also on Instagram at Fool's Guide, which is one word. Yep. Um, we also have a Twitter, but we're not really using it presently. So more we on that it. later. We have a yeah. Twitter. Yeah, we have. Um, Fool's Guide. I don't know. It's kind of a... Yeah. I, I go back and forth on Twitter. I personally just think it's a toxic experience all told. And I don't know if we can need that kind of toxicity in our lives, you know? Oh. Well, we'll be there. You're invited. Uh-huh. We might not be super active, but we'll be there. Mm-hmm. We support True. you. True. Just know that. All right. So some kind of the flow for the episode today, we're going to touch on something we talked about last episode, which is dangers. So we're bl- briefly going to run through that. We're going to talk about uh, black versus white versus the middle path, um, rehashing a brief discussion Kevin brought up uh, last episode. We'll talk about protection and banishing rituals. We're going to jump from there straight into visualization and meditation. So this is kind of a heavy episode. And then next episode on divination is going to be a little bit more free form, a little bit more just kind of. Divination uh, is a little more free form. So kind of by necessity, it's going to be a little wibbly wobbly. Mm -hmm. 
Just a little bit. But we promise to give you something solid to practice every episode. So there'll be a, a solid yeah. point in that episode too. And the things that we cover here are going to be more of like the concrete things that we think that you should know. Pretty much the more the more exact information that you get about these, the better. So that's why we're going to be kind of a little bit more in depth here. Yeah, and I imagine we'll bounce back and forth between those forms mm-hmm. from episode to episode. You know, a couple episodes will be really content heavy, and then we'll be like, and then there's this. Tag us on Twitter with whether you think we scripted that episode or not. We'll tell you if you're right, and we may send you something if you got it right. We may also not, but we might. Speaking of which, I have a challenge for you guys that's in the works, a and challenge. we'll bring that up next All episode. Right. That'll be super cool. A challenge. So, onward we go. Uh, Dangers. Last episode, we briefly mentioned that there are some dangers to occult and magical work. Uh, Manly P. Hall, in words to the wise, mentions hallucinations of various types are an eventual result of dedicated work in the occult arts. Since we're going to be going further in our discussion on this episode, we thought it important to go into a little more detail on some of that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Phil Hines' book, Condensed Chaos, does a really great job at outlining some of those dangers. So I thought that would be a great place to start. And the first one that he identifies is isolation precedes madness. So if you don't have any friends that are into any of this occult business, uh, maybe make some before going deeper. Even if it's just online, uh, find a community, join our community, locate some people that you can go on this journey with because this is not one where you where you really can or should go it alone. If none of the people that you currently know are groovy enough to get into this kind of magic, then we'll always be here for you. And reach out to us on the Fool's Guide community on Facebook to let us know that you're out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second uh, is what Phil Hines called magasitis, which is essentially uh, the magician's version of narcissism. Yeah, so remember the, the Buddhist phrase, if you meet the Buddha on the road to enlightenment, kill him. This basically means, you know, if you think you got it, you don't. Never stop growing and never assume that you've reached, like, guru or enlightened status. Yeah, that's a pretty hardcore saying. Also, if you meet somebody who wants to be your guru or teacher, look out. Uh, They're most likely full of themselves at the very least and a dangerous manipulator at worst. And this this technically includes us. Um, Just remember that we told you not to trust us. So if you end up trusting us, that's, that's pretty much on you. Yeah, I'm also working on this book called Cult Leader's Handbook, and that's kind of just the tentative title. And if I ever end up releasing it, we can talk about this kind of stuff a whole lot more. I guess I, I just struggle with the idea of some like of anybody walking up to me like, hey, brah, I could like totally be your guru. Yeah, like it feels kind of skeezy, like like getting propositioned at a music festival I didn't want to mm-hmm. go to. it's more sneaky than that usually it's a slow indoctrination honestly if you want to see some great examples of successful cult leaders check out you know any u.s president um or presidential candidate or i don't know alex jones or who's that guy that's like really into reptile people david Uh, ike yeah david ike that guy's crazy that guy that kind of reminds me of like a small town martial arts dojo instructor david ike Ike. (laughs) We, we should unpack that later totally um, also, we should discuss this handbook of yours. Um, I kind of feel like you just are kind of like a repository of information that's going to get you put on like a list somewhere. 
Like, uh, you remember that time I borrowed that field manual from you on uh, Guerrilla Warfare? Was that the Anarchist yeah, cookbook, I, or was that the... No, it's Randall it's like a like a military models. guide that like lays out like the like field of battle and like everything. It's crazy. There was this series of books by some sort of crazed outdoorsman that were called things like man trapping. And I don't remember who Yikes. wrote those, but they were incredible. Huh. That's interesting. I don't know. I just feel like the more information you have, the more free you are because you have less limitations. So All right. know, mm-hmm. freedom it's like through, that saying you know, power information of the mind. wants to be free and information will set you free too i guess yeah isn't that part of the hacker's motto and then like information wants to be free Mm -hmm. and we want to liberate it or something like that all right so third up is obsession which i think goes without saying anytime someone gets obsessed with anything it can have disastrous effects for themselves or others i try to combat this by never taking anything all that seriously least of all myself yeah, I'm kind of reminded of that scene in the Umbrella Academy. I forget what episode it is, but uh, when number seven is talking to the, the first uh, chair violinist in the restroom and she gets that speech on, you know, doing something that you're passionate about. Um, every skill takes a lot of work and practice. But if you don't really have that true spark of passion, you aren't ever really going uh, to go beyond being good at something and enter the realm of being great at something. So you really have to just find that thing that you love and put all your energy into it. The only issue is it's a balancing act, right? You just have to be careful not to let that thing you're passionate about become you. So what we are saying is you need to do other things besides occult research and ritual all the time. Uh, Pick up an instrument, do some art, act, play sports, uh, get it on like Donkey Kong, whatever it is. Like we're basically telling you to go outside and play with your friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, but you'd be surprised the things that you can figure out when you're not actively working on them, just keeping them on like the mental subconscious back burner. Yeah, let your let your subconscious brain do a whole lot of work for you when you're doing other things. You kind of have to like really uh, submerge yourself in something for a long time and then take a step back and let your brain work on it while your conscious brain mm-hmm. does other stuff. All right. Number four, uh, Phil Hine mentions what he calls cosmic tragedy in which the practitioner becomes someone of uh, universal significance and everything that happens to them is the, uh, has you know great significance, great meaning, and no one could possibly yeah. understand. It's like the emo versus goth kid episode of South Park, or I guess just think back to high school if you need to. Not everything that happens is important, significant, intentional, or really even about you at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my opinion, life has no greater meaning than to continue. So you're not the Messiah or anything like that. Just get over yourself. Sometimes random shit is just random shit. Sometimes you can avoid it. And sometimes you step right in the middle of it. Charmingly nihilistic. Yeah, Yeah, just don't (laughs) act like king shit of fuck mountain once you start getting into magic. All right. Next up, we have paranoia. This is where the practitioner thinks everyone is out to get them. Uh, Classic paranoia type. People think they are being cursed text attacked by other magicians and or malevolent forces that's like i mean you know what uh the thing where somebody will call and say that there's a problem with your computer and that they're from microsoft and that you need to get online so they can connect to it and fix it for you (laughs) microsoft doesn't care about you microsoft isn't going to call you that's never ever going to happen and this is very much a parallel to that you are insufficiently important to Mm -hmm. merit the attention of high level practitioners spearfished by like other magicians most likely so sixth is what phil hein referred to as gnostic burnout Uh, so if you pour too much energy into anything 
without self-care, you will burn out. It doesn't matter if it's work or protesting your government or making love or making art or whatever you're doing, you got to take care right, of yourself. Exactly. Like with anything else, self-care is important. And that comes doubly so, I think, when it comes to magical practice. Uh, do whatever you need to do in order to keep yourself sane, um, so long as you're not, you know, hurting yourself or others. Yeah, absolutely. Seventh is not from Phil Hine at all, but it, I, you know, I want to add it um, to reiterate, I guess, uh, Hall's statement about madness and uh, that. Uh, if you remember Manly P. Hall, we talked about him in the beginning. Yeah. Um, I don't know the title of the book. Um, I don't have it in front of me. It's actually in a box somewhere in a garage on the other side of the continent. Um, but and I haven't read in about eight years. But generally, the, the gist of it is this. If you put enough energy towards seeing, hearing, or otherwise communicating with spirits or gods or entities of any kind, you will. Maybe you are communicating with them. Or maybe you're seeing uh, reflections of your deep inner psyche, or maybe you've snapped and lost your mind. And to point back at something Kevin had mentioned last episode, I I think it's rather poignant. You said there's uh, power in a carefully closed mind. You need to be the master of your castle. You choose what you let in and what you don't. Uh, You need to be a conscious filter of information, whether it's spiritual, political, societal, or just general everyday stimuli. So you have to be active in the process. Don't shut down. And- yeah, to carry the castle metaphor, do not hesitate to close the old mental portcullis to keep the bullshit out. Reminds sure. me of this one quote, an open mind is like a castle with its gate open and drawbridge down. I'm pretty sure that quote came from Warhammer 40k in some capacity, but I think it's oh, applicable here. Yeah, There were some really trippy quotes about belief in theofascism in Warhammer 40k. So maybe we'll be careful when lifting from there um blessed is the mind with no room for doubt is probably not where we want to go yeah that seems a little too far in the other direction all right well basically if you become passive there's a whole host of stuff that can go wrong psychosis manipulation depression etc both cult leaders and politicians who i often also consider cult leaders uh use the same tactics Mm -hmm. just in different magic is like 80 percent filtering through garbage And when your will is strong enough, you can force yourself to see and unsee things pretty much as needed. All right. So from here, we're diving into black versus white magic versus what some people call the middle path. And as a side note, uh, let's come back to something Kevin mentioned last week again. Uh, I imagine this is going to be a, a point of difference for all three of us, as well as many of our listeners out there. But Kevin, you mentioned the notion that magic is like cowboys or computer hacking. Now, I personally think Cowboys from Hell Fuck by yeah. Pantera was an awesome yeah. song. Yeah. And I'd say Jesse James was like a modern day American Robin Hood, but you just can't ignore the fact that he joined the Bushwhackers Ooh. and fought on the Confederate side of the Civil War. But some of this stuff uh, done under the name of hackers like Anonymous is totally dope. And Spawn was always my favorite superhero. Anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is my cultural anthropologist brain operates under the notion that morality is relative to the culture and often the situation or context under which we're investigating. There's that saying, a witch that cannot curse, cannot heal. What are your thoughts? absolutely heard uh, the can't hex, can't heal thing. Uh, we talk a lot about this kind of mythical good practitioner. Like good is incompetent rather than good as in like friendly and chipper. And one of the biggest contributing factors to that competence is a breadth of understanding. 
So, yes, it's ethically reprehensible to go cursing other people for your own benefit. But just like surgeons end up learning how to cut people in order to heal people, learning beneficial magics inherently and necessarily includes learning malicious magics. The point is understanding the larger overall system that you're impacting. So I'm going to stick to that surgeon metaphor. Say a surgeon is learning about arteries and the circulatory system. That knowledge, that understanding of the major pathways of blood flow through the body intrinsically comes with the knowledge of how to disrupt those pathways. Failing to understand the things that cause problems in blood flow means that the surgeon has failed to grasp the purpose and function of the circulatory system. Like, I need to make sure not to put unnecessary holes in someone's circulatory system. But likewise, with magic, learning how to improve your own or someone else's life means automatically understanding how to make someone's life circumstances worse. You need to learn that whole system, not just the nice bits. So like, if that surgeon sees a bruise and says, all right, I know that bruises are just blood pooling beneath the skin. So, logically, if I take out the blood pooling beneath the skin, there won't be blood pooling beneath the skin and the bruise will go away. So, the surgeon makes an incision and the patient promptly bleeds out. So a failure of understanding has occurred here because the surgeon is not keeping in mind the entire system he's affecting. So you can't just do friendly, beneficial stuff without an understanding of how your actions are impacting this larger system. Yeah, it's my understanding that magic is not like inherently good or evil. Like it just simply is and it's a tool that you can use to just force your will upon the universe. So I guess even if you have the best intent for what you're doing, unless you have a complete and under understanding complete and other understanding of the ramifications. Yeah, pretty much bad and good magic are going to look very much the same. I feel like the two things that we should be discussing are careful magic and clumsy magic. Like, are you doing what you set out to do, or are you doing right. more or, or less than you set out to do? That's really a better measure of the quality of a practitioner. Do you guys uh, remember uh, the, it was a uh, movie critic his name was like Roger Ebert or something like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. He would yeah. never review movies based on whether or not he was he thought was a good movie or not. He would review it on whether or not he thought the intentions of like what the movie set out to do basically achieved what they were trying to do. So if it was a movie that was understood itself to be a bad movie, it was a good movie in his eyes because he understood it that it achieved what it set out to do. It was in it was internally consistent with its own goals. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I dig that. Right. I dig that a lot. All right. Well, before we move on, I want to paraphrase and at some points quote a couple things that uh, Peter J. Carroll writes in uh, Libra Null. Um, he defines white magic as the acquisition of wisdom and general feeling of uh, faith in the universe and black magic as a focus on the acquisition of power and being more focused on faith in oneself. So he goes on to write that, quote, the end results are likely not to be dissimilar for the paths meet in ways that are impossible to describe. He also takes some time to talk about uh, the so-called middle path and he writes, quote, the so-called middle path or middle way or path of knowledge consists of the acquisition of secondhand ideas as an excuse to do neither and leads nowhere. I feel like it's kind of like the Talamasca and Anne Rice's Vampire okay. Chronicles, they say, like, uh, observe the dark world, but be not of it. Like, why the hell be involved in the first place? The same can be said about people who don't stand up for anything and refuse to be involved in politics. 
Um, you know, the origin of the word idiot comes from the word uh, idios in Athenian. The word idios means someone who's uninterested in politics. But the problem is everything is political. So every decision, you know, apathy is the choice to give your power away to monsters. So be the master of your own world, your reality, or someone will be the master of it for you. Those are your choices. And I think that's one of the problems that we're seeing right now in society is that there's just so much apathy out there. And because of that, there's a lot of bad shit that follows it. I want to address the concept of the middle path in terms of action versus inaction. Because the Talamasca were definitely more observers and therefore not really involved in the world. That was a really nice metaphor for the Peter J. Carroll version mm-hmm. of a middle path. I feel like there is value in examining that definition of white magic used selfishly or black magic used selflessly uh, as, as possible iterations on a middle path. Like, I'm, I'm not going to lie. The biggest reasons that I'm involved in occult practice are for me, for me and the people I care about to benefit. That's not something I'm shy about because honesty is important to me. But by the same token, I don't need to be the only one that benefits. And as a result, things that I do that spill over in beneficial ways onto other people are definitely something to be chased. That's something to be pursued, something to use as an objective. Because, yes, I do kind of want to leave a positive impact on the world to warm the barren cockles of my heart. But the objective is still for me to benefit. That's something I'm really not going to prevaricate on. Interesting. It's kind of like a more direct application of the uh, the law of... Um... Uh, and it unintended consequences. The trick is intending those consequences. Interesting. Does it work that way? Large yeah, system. I mean, if you have your statement of intent right and you perform everything to the letter, it should work out perfectly mm-hmm. if it works. By the same token, people can be uh, faithful in the universe and acquiring wisdom in a way that's deeply selfish and that doesn't benefit anyone, let alone themselves. Uh, I most encounter this in... Uh, typically old white church okay. ladies. Yeah. I think we can all understand that metaphor. Yeah. All right. All of that aside and back on topic, uh, let's talk about a couple of basic things that we can do to protect ourselves before, during, and after magic rituals or you know, just in general. I'm going to share with you a couple different things that I learned or picked up, I guess, kind of when I was much younger. Um, and I really encourage everyone else to kind of Find what works for you and just kind of, I mean, do some research if you have to see what what rituals are already out there, modify them and, uh, you know, make them what you will. Um, Basically, when I was uh, really young, I was into Wicca and I learned a couple of spells which formed sort of the foundation of my understanding of what banishing looked like. And as time went on, I really changed it and do something totally different now. But the first one. It's total BS, but it it goes like this. By the dragon's light on this, and you insert the day of the week and time of day. So you could say, like, this Saturday night, um, I call to thee to give me your might. By the power of three, I conjure thee to protect all that surrounds me. And you repeat that three times and imagine a green light filling the space and a dragon coiling around the space and protect. I mean, I get the, the use of rhyme. And the use of visualization. I feel like this is a good, like, baby's first ritual. Yeah. And there's no harm in that. No. Like, this is a great way to dip your toes into saying some weird shit and thinking some weird shit and assuming mm-hmm. that it's going to have an effect on the world. Well, perception is reality, practice. right? 
Exactly. So I'm going to hold up. Like, I'm going to wave the flag for by the yeah. dragon's light, so on and so forth. Right. And by the way, Baby's First Ritual is a book that we should all write. Once we get finished it absolutely with that cult is. manual. Yeah. I'll work on Baby's cool, First cool. Ritual. You guys can do the cult. All right. Cool. And we'll start and, a cult. All right. Time. <laughs> and we'll do Baby's First Ritual. <laughs> We're all yep. getting arrested. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it won't be the first time. Um. All right, the other one uh, I learned uh, felt a little more legitimate to me and, uh, then and somewhat now, though I don't really use it anymore. Um, in the second one, you sit or lay um, and imagine a, a pentacle beneath you. That's a five-pointed star inside the circle. And you emit this... Str- uh, the, I'm sorry, the, pen- the pentacle emits a strong, bright white light. So again, you're visualizing and that light is supposed to be cleansing the space around you. And so you imagine this light creating a protective barrier. And as you visualize this, you're going to chant the following thing. Thrice around the circles bound, sink all evil to the ground. And you're going to chant that three times. End with samot it be, which is the old Saxon word that means uh, moat, means must. So basically the phrase you're saying, so shall it be or so must it be, uh, basically the same as saying amen in uh, the Christian church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mote it be got tossed around a lot in those Freemason meetings, let me tell oh, you. Yeah. I like so mote it be better than I like amen because it's more intent based. Like, yes, we declare that this is now a thing in the world. It's it's a bit more declaratory than the, yeah. the amen of agreement. Like, yeah. They're just saying like, yeah, we think so too, instead of like, no, this is how it is. Mm-hmm. So say we all, exactly. Right, bringing something into being. Yeah. Anyway, so when I was a kid, I changed uh, Sink All Evil to the ground to beyond the ground because I lived in the basement in both of my parents' houses. So to the ground really, to me, felt like all around me, which wasn't something I wanted. So you can absolutely change stuff up to your needs, and uh, which brings me to the point that I want to make about tradition and tradition really just means something that worked for a group of people at some point in space time. And if it doesn't work for you here and now, throw it out. So know the difference between science, like hard knowledge and tradition. Uh, There are different values in both of these things. So don't ignore something because you are ignorant or you don't know what's going on. You really need to learn and understand a thing before you choose to use or misuse or abuse or ignore whatever it is. So in this case, modifying the language of a ritual to suit your own purpose is definitely something to chase. That's definitely something to get good at. But it's important to understand the way the ritual is now Mm -hmm. because there is a preponderance of tradition and belief behind how it is currently executed. And it's important to maintain the value of that while still adapting it to suit your own needs. Right. I kind of see tradition as more of like helpful suggestions than something sure. that needs to be like a hard and fast rule. Tradition gets a vote, not a veto. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. All right. So there's the singing ceremonial magic called the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram. And we're not going to teach it to you, at least not right now. If we do, it, it would be an entire episode on itself. And honestly, I think unless your path is specifically ceremonial magic, and we might do a series on that at some point in time, um, it's not, unless you're doing that, it's not particularly useful to you. I learned it a long, long time ago, probably when I was 13 and was first getting into 
all this stuff to begin with. Um, ceremonial magic is an effective system. If that's the system you choose to work with, um, it works. But I believe it's sort of overcomplicated and uh, basically for no particular purpose whatsoever. There are other things I think that work just as well, and you can do them much easier. So, If you really want to learn that, Donald Michael Craig teaches it in a great deal of detail in Modern Magic. You can Google it. Uh, you'll find techniques on how to do it. For me personally, I really love ceremonial magic in larger groups because the point of a ceremony is to align intent. It's to, to execute a series of actions to help everyone involved align their intent to execute something. And if you're doing this alone, I think ceremony loses a lot of its punch and just involves a lot of extra time and a lot of funny dance moves that aren't really necessary or critical to solo practice. So, all right. Here's something that I was actually kind of thinking about the other day is marching band ceremonial magic. Absolutely. Okay. Because it's essentially just like the application of motion music and essentially forming sigils using your body in order to create what we believe to be a desired outcome, which is, you know, it's, it's also engineered to create an, uh, a mindset and to capture a specific sense, typically of nostalgia and relationships in the audience, uh, because you're doing something that the audience can identify and be like, oh, hey, look at that thing that they're doing that I get. I get that reference. I'm part of the team mm -hmm. and the crew. It's designed to capture that belongingness and that sense of, of nostalgia and history. And it does it using basically as ritual implements, the music and the band That's members cool. themselves. Uh, yeah. and I think it's Correct fascinating. Correct me if I'm wrong, but marching band comes from the concept of having uh, like a dr like a drummer for like military, right? Because like in, back in the day, they had like uh, somebody carrying a, a marching beat or a, a war beat when people marched off to battle. Mm -hmm. Is that... That's where that comes from, right? I think it's related. I don't think there's a direct chain of iteration from instructional drumming to theatrical <laughs> drumming. I think that there's a blend of things that led one into the other, right. but I think they're related. So, like that that drumming in like the military context, like creates this sort of like drive and creates a mindset, and and music definitely creates like a a change in the way you think you, especially, I mean, if you want to go to like classical music or, I mean, we could even talk about like heavy metal versus jazz versus mm -hmm. uh, whatever. Sure. By the same token, military drumming is also designed to convey specific information as opposed to a marching band where a specific drum beat doesn't mean a thing in particular in military music, or at least battlefield military music, a specific drum beat or a specific bugle call can mean advance on the double, can mean turn the line left, uh, as opposed to a marching band where the music isn't a specific word-for-word -word translatable language. That makes sense. I guess the, the only point I wanted to throw out there, I guess, is that um, music is a powerful thing you can use to change the way your your mind is kind of operating. Mm -hmm. So if you are trying to evoke True. a specific emotion it might be helpful to use Definitely true. a certain style or type of music to create that right. change. That's a good point. So let's talk a bit about chaos style banishing. So back to Lieber Null, uh, Carol says that one should use a magical weapon, such as 
an athame, a sword, a wand, etc. I mean, it could be like a magical chancla or something. You just pick a magical weapon. Yeah, and we're going to do an episode, um, a couple episodes from now, about, I think we're going to call it Tools of the Trade or something like that, where we're going to talk about um, not just magical weapons, but like um, Books of Shadows and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. But essentially... trappings. Yeah. One thing I learned and hung on to when I was really younger and first getting into this stuff was using your index finger on your dominant hand as... Um, the magical weapon and your recessive hand palm faced out as the magical shield. And once I really kind of harnessed that idea, I totally abandoned the, the idea of using external objects as a, uh, a, uh, mm-hmm. I kind of like that itself. idea too, but mostly cause it just sounds like some badass like Bruce Lee into the dragon style of like magic. I always feel like, the point of using an external implement Mm -hmm. is to assist with focus for a specific purpose. So like your hands are attached to you. They're really good for like quick instinctive direction of things and forces and, and information or whatever it is. Uh, If you're using a specific implement, that implement should have meaning based on what you're using it for. Like, I don't believe in a default magical implement. Well, I'm actually not so sure about that because if you think about it, like the brain understands things in terms of how things relate to one another. If you look at a sword, a sword has the implication, I believe, to the human mind that it would be something like this is a tool of power. It can defend or it can destroy. Therefore, it is going to be a more serious um, focus implement than, say, a saxophone or something like that. I mean, I guess that depends on the hoops you make your brain jump through when you declare or or assign your magical implement of choice. We'll talk about this more in the magical implement episode. We're getting too far sure, into sure. it for now. Yeah, clearly Tyler um, never played a bard in D anD. Yeah, I mean that is what that. That's no like. accident. Yes. I love playing bards. <laughs> anyway, right, moving on. So, so using this magical weapon or implement, you're going to trace a boundary around yourself. So visualize it heavily. We'll talk about that a little bit later in this episode. Make it three-dimensional, like the cone of power or a dodecahedron or whatever shape, whatever three-dimensional construct seems personally significant. Uh, You're going to focus all of your will on this image. If you want to describe it as your third eye, use your third eye to describe this image. Next, you reinforce that boundary you've created with symbols of power. So pentagrams, chaos stars, crosses, whatever you like. This is chaos magic. You do what you want to do. As Carol points out, you can also use words of power if you like. Um, I love words of power. There are uh, a couple of really specific ones from a book series that I love uh, called The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, (laughs) the Unbeliever by Stephen R. Donaldson. And there are seven words of magical power that they use... Uh, and each of the words does something specific. We'll talk about that more in the future. Yeah, I also use my own personal words of power that I've created myself. I have a couple that unlock uh, specific aspects of my, uh, I guess, personality, you could say, that I have kind of, um, I guess, Phil Hein would Keep it, under lock and key. Yeah, I keep them under lock and key. And there are certain words of power that I have that unlock those locks and kind of let them mm-hmm. run wild. And, so. Right. So to finish a chaos-style banishing, you've traced your boundary using your weapon, you've made it three-dimensional, you've focused your will, 
You've reinforced the boundary with symbols of power. You've said your words if you want to say your words. Now, finally, you enter gnosis, the, the mental state of gnosis, either by meditation or whatever other method, and then you enact your banishing once all of these ingredients are in place. You're just ticking all these boxes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something I do that's slightly different, um, I focus on my aura as a pure white light enveloping the body, and then I just push it out further and further and further uh, using that as a way of cleansing and banishing the space I'm in. And I push it to the point that it fills the entire room and hold it there and then uh, push it further until it encases the whole house. If I'm in one, um, you could also do this in other spaces, but usually I'm in a house um, when I'm doing this kind of thing modify it if you need or you know you can come up something that works personally for you remember belief is just a tool so pull together a set of symbols uh anything with personal significance and Mm -hmm. start building off of that all right let's uh go into uh protective wards and symbols and sigils a little bit as well um sometimes a little symbolism goes a long way Uh, you can totally use like little physical symbols of protection or sigils as as small levels of basic protection. So like how people wear crucifixes or wear pentagrams or wear whatever it is. Uh, You can draw pentagrams on things or use other symbols that you know or that you've created and just keep that physical token on or about your person. Yeah, um, you can also draw the symbol of a servitor that you've uh, brought into being, but we'll talk about that more in a later episode. You can also create amulets or talismans and again that's more in the realm of uh enchanting Mm -hmm. that we'll talk about later on all right i think this brings us to the section of the episode which is going to be about stuff we're going to ask you to practice or you can practice if you want and that's visualization and meditation before we dive into these things i think it Um, I think we should point out that there is some difference in opinion on which one you should focus your attention on first. Uh, I tend to follow the Chaos Magician's uh, arguments. Peter J. Carroll makes some pretty solid points in Libranol. He argues that everyone should practice in phases. If you're familiar with education terminology, we call this scaffolding. So starting with a, a base level and building off of that, building off that foundation towards more complex skills and ideas. Carol asks uh, practitioners to start uh, with motionlessness. And when that's mastered, move on to breath control. And when that's mastered, follow that by no thought, trying to think of nothing. And after this basic state of meditation is built as a foundation, then he includes a variety of visualization, starting with staring at fixed points, so fixed gaze, Uh, which later leads to uh, work with auras or other related related practices. Uh, He also talks about sound concentration, which aids in clearing the mind, but is also the the root work for words of power and a variety of vocal spellcasting techniques. Image concentration, uh, which is the basis of sigil and servitor work and creating thought forms. And he ends the section in Libra Nall Um, with what he calls metamorphosis, which is beyond the scope of this episode, but is a very fundamental aspect of magical development in general, and especially in terms of chaos magic. So we'll get into that 
at a much later point. Mm-hmm. And I like how you kind of tie that into the idea of scaffolding, which I think is a concept that a lot of people have experienced, but not as necessarily something that they're familiar with. I guess a good way to describe it is like you can't really understand like calculus until you understand algebra. Can't really understand algebra until you understand all these other basic mathematical concepts, but all of them sort of flow into a common shared end goal idea. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of wish that I think when you understand the process of learning, you can learn better. So I almost wish that in school we were taught how they were teaching us Mm -hmm. as they were teaching us, which is something I might start doing with my students. Some of the theories of teaching would have been really helpful when going about the process of learning learning to learn. I agree. I think is a very core concept here. And with all that said, I think it makes the most sense to start our discussion with meditation and lead into visualization. Yeah, I fully agree. Meditation. Pretty much every culture has some form of meditation or quiet contemplation, uh, be that actual meditative practice in Eastern culture, actual meditative practice in far northern cultures, things like exhaustive study in Abrahamic culture, uh, things like sipping a mint julep on your porch in southern American culture, like southern U.S. culture. Yeah. That quiet moment of contemplation to examine the world around you by whatever means you find most prudent. Or just to be rather than examining. I mean, it can be both, but I think like finding that space to just exist yeah, fair enough. is also a key component of meditation. Donald Michael Krieg puts it, it's about silencing the mind, which is basically what Soto Zen Buddhists practice. Um, the practice, however, comes from comes out of, rather than comes from, a variety of different Eastern traditions, including the Indian systems of spirituality, um, Hebrew practices, uh, it's like like uh, Kevin said, it's all over the world in many different forms. Yeah, I guess the single commonality that you can see is that it's a form of relaxation that allows you to unify your actions, voluntary and involuntary, with your thought. It's a, a form of controlling your mind, a sort of uh, developer mode that lets you dig mm-hmm. into your brain's operating code and start rewriting it as you like. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so according to some who operate under the Indian spiritual systems, if done properly, you can align your chakras and slowly advance what's called your kundalini upward towards your crown chakra, which exists on the top of your head, um, developing psychic powers and achieving enlightenment. I dated a lady who was super into Tantra, which I believe is related to that. I wish I had more on the topic to discuss, but she was pretty distracting. What not kind super of Tantra was she into? In talking shop about well, methodology you know. with me. The fun kind? I mean, yeah, okay. The fun kind. Yeah. 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 That's why you were distracted. I I bought a book on Tantra back in uh, December, but I honestly haven't got a chance to read it yet. Um, but we should definitely come back to Tantra at some point and talk about the different types of it and Absolutely. Uh, go into more sure. detail about that. So in East Asia, meditation is sometimes connected to the concept of chi or ki or energy, depending on what country we're talking about, what language, what system. Uh, It's a form of universal energy that permeates and maintains all life. Uh, It's also tied to the concept of yin and yang, as well as the five classic metaphysical elements of the Asian system, which are fire, water, earth, metal, and wood, uh, and a whole host of other components that could be the topic of an entire series of episodes in the future. The development, maintenance, and focusing of key energy for a variety of purposes is done through 
dance-like meditative process called Qigong. Uh, but when doing strict seated meditation, which is what we're going to talk about, uh, the mind's focus is brought to the Hara or Tanjun point, somewhere near the yeah. navel. I actually took a class my very first semester in college called Oriental Healing Arts, which was pretty much all about Qigong and meditation and how like meridian lines work, which are like the flow of spiritual energy across your body. It counted as a physical education credit and I yeah, <laughs> I did not really want to take a sport. So that worked out pretty well. Um, pretty much everyone in my class were massage therapy majors. And Man. I was that weird goth kid covered in spikes and chains. Um, it, let's let's be fair. You would still be that kid if you didn't have to dress um, up for work. Yes, absolutely. So it was pretty interesting. Um, if you are interested in key or chi energy, there's a book called The Key Process by uh, Scott Sean. Um, it's a quick 125-page introduction to the system and leaves you with a few exercises you can use, including breath practice, meditation, qigong techniques, primarily from the perspective of a white dude who has also studied in the Korean method. Um, he also includes some history and technical yeah. information from Chinese, Japanese, and Indian perspectives, which is nice. Another aspect is in How to Practice by the Dalai Lama. There are many ways to meditate, including analytical meditation, stabilizing meditation, subjective and objective types, imaginative meditation, meditation centered around wishing. He even discussed Tantra, which, as we mentioned before, we're definitely going to discuss at some point. One thing that I was doing when I was starting to get into yoga was a lot of uh, visualization and um, sort of guided meditation, uh, which definitely led to some very interesting experiences. Yeah, I imagine. According to Raymond Buckland, uh, meditation is the process by which you listen to the higher consciousness or inner self. Many people have described consciousness as being broken into these three parts. Uh, consciousness is where you are right now which according to Buckland is concerned with the everyday world. There's the subconscious, which controls involuntary aspects of the body. Uh, Buckland seems to think that it's subordinate to the consciousness mind, but I don't, I don't think so. I'm going to have to disagree with Buckland on that one. I think that there are also deeper ingrained tendencies, habits, or body and mind. A lot of your learned biases and cultural outlooks uh, tend to live here as well under this system. Uh, and then we've got the superconscious, mm -hmm. which is about self-actualization and spiritual health. Yeah. And some chaos magicians try to merge the three before entering Gnosis and going and, and doing magic. Actually, if you, you follow the tech set forth by arc trader Blue Fluke mm -hmm. called the Complete Psychonauts Field Manual, which you can find on the internet if you just Google it, um, there's a method for doing this, which involves sigils and intonation, which is actually what I was talking about in my, my journal note in the beginning of the episode. Don't get ahead of yourself. It's good to work slow and steady pace to avoid burnout and making mistakes. But definitely, if you're interested in the, the, the chaos method before buying one of those more dense books, check out his his tech online. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's a pretty good starting point. My big issue with this is it's all very, very Freudian, which is fine and cool for some folks. But my love for good scientific technique really throws me for a curveball where it comes to Freud's work. Uh, I tend to steer clear of that id, ego, superego model. I tend to stick to some of the still flawed, but at least better models like uh, Maslow and Erickson's model. So admittedly, fewer 
magical practitioners write about the hierarchy of needs or stages of moral development. But yeah, Freud, though. Freud. True. But also remember, belief is a tool. You know, it can be useful to break down your mind in that way, just for like uh, the sake of breaking it down for the aspect of using it as a tool. You know, your emotions, your habits, um, create them into distinct characters. They can then be controlled and manipulated by different processes. Condensed Chaos by Phil Hine has this really interesting section on um, ego magic and your personal demons and using basically considering negative aspects of your personality as demons and then binding them. Hmm. Aside from all of that, uh, Maslow's work and uh, Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence is, is really interesting. All right, so let's get back to the basics a little bit. Why is something like meditation so important? All right. In Libranol, Peter Carroll states, quote, to work magic effectively, the ability to concentrate the attention must be built up until the mind can enter a trance-like condition. So it has some purpose in magical work. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, self-assessment, controlling your mind and rewriting your cultural operating system, which is very important in chaos magic, achieving altered states of consciousness, such as gnosis, uh, which we will still need to dig into. Yeah, that's a pretty complicated uh, topic that I think is going to require its own episode at some point. It's complicated and it's not complicated at the same time. And it's really what we're mostly concerned with here. And we're going to touch on it briefly at the end of this episode. But I think you're right there. We should do a whole episode on methods of gnosis or perhaps a series of episodes. And purposes of gnosis. Mm-hmm. Just really getting it defined, ironed down. This is what gnosis is. This is what it is for. All of that stuff, I think, will exist. Yeah, how do you pronounce it? All that stuff. Sure. Gnosis. Gnosis. It's like gnocchi. Nauseous. Right. Yeah. Not nauseous. Uh, nauseous. <laughs> Onward. All right. All right. So how often should you meditate? Uh, Donald Michael Krieg, author of Modern Magic, says every day, but I absolutely mm-hmm. do not. Brad Warner, who's the author of this book called Hardcore Zen, says you should practice at least twice a day, starting around 10 minutes per session and increasing the amount of time. Uh, the better you get at it and the stronger focus you have. Back when I was really into Buddhism, uh, way more than I am now, I was reading a couple books by Tenzin Gyatso, who is the 11th and current Dalai Lama. I believe it was in the book Becoming Enlightened, where he says something like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Or I'm sorry, 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. are the best times of day to practice. Mm. But... Uh, you should do it immediately after waking up and right before going to bed. Now, don't quote me on that because it's been a long time since I read either of those. However, Raymond Buckland says early in the morning, late evening, or mid-afternoon, but mentions that some people suggest that the time closest to your time of birth. So I kind of like the significance of that, and it fits my lifestyle because I was born at right around one in the morning, and that's pretty much in the middle of hmm. when I do my best thinking. That's pretty convenient, then. That's interesting. I wonder if that's a coincidence. It is. There's probably a practical element to this, too. Like, you should meditate when you're in the best place for meditating. If you tend to be in a good spot for it at, like, 3.30 after a short nap, then, yeah, that's the perfect time. The perfect time is whenever mm-hmm. you're going to do your best Yeah, thing. like while you're getting your teeth nope. drilled. Nobody's having their best thoughts. I mean, what else were you planning on thinking about? All right. So basically, opinions on the subject vary. I think personally, you can get yourself to do it every day. You should. And time of day makes no difference whatsoever. And uh, there are a lot of other benefits here that you'll be seeing beyond just magical practice. Uh, Do I do it every day? No. 
Not anymore. Um, but I used to, and I really should again. I actually just bought a Zafu. I should be using it more than I have been. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what is. Oh, Zafu. we'll talk right. about it in a little bit. Fantastic. So, however you decide to add meditation to your life, I'm a big fan of of creating habits. So, if you want to meditate, find a way to integrate that practice as a habit in your life. So, pick a special spot, like a favorite table at a restaurant, or a favorite bit of a path in your favorite forest or park or your favorite spot on your favorite couch. Have a few of these in case one of them is occupied when you get there and you need to go pick a different one. Um, pick a good time that fits into your week, maybe a couple of times a week, maybe just once. Whatever works for you, the important bit is that you get into it, not that you do a perfect job and that you do it every day like clockwork if that's not a realistic thing for you to add to your life right now. Yeah, it's important to know that you won't really be good at it at first, but it's still important to, like Kevin said, just to build the habit of getting the practice in. You just need to have a time to yourself where you are in a good place, in a good mindset. It's like your dream journal. Your dream journal starts out, you wake up, you scratch some ridiculous emotional takeaway from whatever ridiculous mm -hmm. thing your brain spat at you over the course of the night. And over time, that changes from the McDonald's clown chased me down a canyon to much more elaborate, much more involved recountings of the things you experienced while you were asleep. The same way with meditation. It's going to start, you're going to go somewhere, you're going to sit down, you're going to try and get comfortable, you're not going to be comfortable, you're going to work on sitting still, you're not going to be good at it for a while. Eventually you'll get good at sitting still and you'll be thinking about all sorts of stuff. And eventually you'll get good at not thinking about all sorts of stuff and you'll get into that meditative style. And then you're going to get sick and you're going to take a week off and it's going to mess up the habit. And it's important to be aware of that going mm -hmm. in that your life is going to have to accommodate that. You're just going to have to keep at it, but in a way that works for you. However that is, you will get better at it right. if you Absolutely. want to and if you stick to it. Yeah. And I guess since you mentioned all the, the different places and times and things to meditate, I should just describe what a Zafu is now. Uh, sure. I, I'm a big fan of it. It's basically a Zen meditation pillow. Um, it was, you know, prominent in Zen meditation, which like Soto comes from Japan. Um, it's basically a pillow that sits on the floor. It's sort of circular, usually, although some companies have made square ones traditionally it's a it's kind of oval like circular like pillow that's filled with uh buckwheat hulls um and it's you know its purpose is when you're sitting in lotus position to keep your spine aligned um so your knees are on the floor but kind of your your back your hindquarters are sitting on the pillow so it's a slight butt elevation pillow. yeah exactly i only sit on it for meditation uh, when I feel like when you give certain things a specific purpose to which you only use them for, they have more power and they also help trigger yeah. your brain into certain states of mind. So I'm going to suggest uh, a word to make an action verb out of the adjective significant. And that, that verb is going to be consecrate. So you consecrate this pillow to this purpose, Yeah, whatever it is. Now you've assigned it a value. It has a significance now. Right. And that makes it better for whatever it's for, as long as you don't use it for other stuff. Exactly. So I, I really like the verb to consecrate. Yeah, things. it's a really great point. And you can do that through formal ritual, like by cleansing something and blessing it and then drawing energy into it. Or you can do that just by only using it for that purpose. You can do it habitually. It can happen yeah. by accident. We'll talk about it more in our Magical Implements video. Yes, absolutely. Audio episode.
Uh, oh, yeah. Awesome. I think it's number oh, yeah. four or five on the list. Yeah. All right. So let's get back into meditation practice. Uh, there are probably hundreds of different styles of meditation and hundreds of subtypes beneath each. Beyond basic meditation, there is a state often referred to as trance, which we'll go into in a later episode. Trance is important, especially when we're talking about shamanism, voodoo, and chaos magic, as is another pathway to the state preferred to as referred to as gnosis, which we will touch on in a bit, but even no thought. Single-pointed meditation is a pathway to this magical frame of mind. But sticking to fundamentals... Uh, for right now, we are going to offer you a couple of things to test out here. All right. So when it comes to to meditation, there are some basics. Be somewhere quiet, um, especially while you start learning it. Don't do what I did. Don't start <laughs> meditating uh, in your doctor's in chair, chair or uh-huh. on the, the, the bus or while you're waiting for the subway train. Uh, eventually, you will be able to do this anywhere. Um, or at least that's the goal. But basically, you want to start in a quiet space. Lock yourself in a closet if you have to. All right, so sit up. Don't lay down. You'll fall asleep. Uh, I have definitely done that. You can sit in a sturdy chair. Uh, I prefer the floor, kind of with like the back of my butt on a cushion. So I guess a de facto Zafu. Uh, so my knees touch the floor. I hear some folks sit full lotus. I can't do that. Uh, if you can't either, crisscross applesauce is just fine. I sit full lotus with one leg on top of the other. Oh yeah. Um, honestly, I don't think leg posture changes anything. What's most important is that you keep your spine straight, your shoulders down, uh, your hands folded in your lap. Uh, if you get into like a zazen thing, there are more specifics, uh-huh. and I think that's more Hector Melted Popsicle who will recommend some books later on. Yes, absolutely. Um, So according to Raymond Buckland, again, some masters say you have to sit facing east. This all really depends on your tradition and what specific set of belief systems you're working with as a cast magician. You know, pick and choose whatever works for you. Personally, I don't care what direction I'm facing. Uh, One of my anthropology teachers uh, when I was working on my undergrad in Hawaii was this wonderful old Kanakamali lady. She told me that, she told me that that the ancient Hawaiians would sleep facing certain directions to achieve certain goals in uh, the dream world or astral space. So facing up was to commune with the gods. Facing the direction of the volcano was to ask for death and a whole bunch of other directions that I can't remember at this point in time. <laughs> or death for others, I guess. She sounds like a fun, uplifting sort of lady. Yeah, face the <laughs> volcano if you want to die. She told me all of the different directions, but those are be. the two that I remember. <laughs> but again, that's like... Com- oh, so it's you. You're the problem. Yeah, I am the problem. No, uh, <laughs> coming uh, back to that thing we were talking about, about tradition earlier, really all those things were just stuff that was told to people to help create like a frame of reference at a point of time, right? Or uh, not really a frame of reference. What am I trying to think of? Like a, a certain way of thinking, mm-hmm. right? So uh, again, tradition is just about what works for, for you at any given point in time. So practically speaking, breathing should be deep and slow and steady in through your nose, out through your mouth, uh, eyes open, kind of tilted slightly downward. According to Krieg, meditation follows three steps. There's relaxation, contemplation, and negation. So relaxation should be obvious. Right. Relieve pain and tension. This is honestly going to be the first thing that you practice is sitting in such a way that you are actually relaxed. Uh, I tend to go all the way from my toes to my head, trying to loosen every single muscle in my body. 
and then back down again. And that can take like 15 or 20 minutes if you want to do it properly, especially at first. Uh, So step two is contemplation. So about uniting the whole consciousness. Remember that gnosis thing we keep mentioning that we haven't properly explained using some kind of focal point like a mantra, sigil, etc. Sometimes you combine multiple of these to create a personal unification practice. This is the second set of things that you're going to work on is working on uh, getting your brain to do all the same thing at once. Yeah. And then finally, you come to this thing called negation. So you drop your ego. I know Kevin's not a big fan of that term, but we'll put it this way. It works here. Yeah, it it does. does. Uh, Kill that voice inside your head. So become a direct link to your superconscious. And if done correctly, the whole process should align your mind in a state referred to as gnosis. And again, we'll go into more detail on the the specifics of what that is. But essentially, you can think of gnosis as single-pointed thought or the state of no thought in which you can direct your life force or your Kia or whatever you want to call it to do specific magical work. Your mojo. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff out there um, that focuses on centering your mind or concentrating at a... uh, you know, the center of your forehead, the third eye where the pineal gland is. Um, Buckland discusses it in his meditation methods in Buckland's complete book of witchcraft. Uh, our trader blue fluke also discusses it in the complete psychonauts field manual. Mm-hmm. That's all well and good. And maybe we'll do an episode where we go deeper into Kundalini and the chakra systems. But for now, we're going to leave the third eye out of it. That gets into some pretty, uh, pretty serious topics. I don't do anything with that at all. I, I guess I just no. threw that in there because it's worth mentioning because people do it and whatever. If it were, if that's your jam, do it. Jam it. To go back to my uh, apparently growing feud with, with Krieg, uh, Krieg claims that you have to do a banishing ritual before you meditate, uh, The specifically the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. Uh, I think that's bull. I don't do that. Uh, you don't need to do a banishing ritual before meditating unless it helps you meditate. If it does, great, do it. I'm kind of a functionalist that way. Uh, for astral work, on the other hand, yeah, you know, banishing ritual, good safety practice. But that's another episode. We'll talk more about that when we get into divination. Yeah. I'm beefing with Krieg, man. Me and Krieg are beefing. <laughs> uh, okay, so we've talked a lot about just a whole bunch of stuff dancing around meditation. So let's let's get more specific, shall we? Zazen is honestly the the method of med- meditation that I'm most familiar with. So um, before I go into this, I want to explain why I'm recommending this model versus what is taught in Krieg's book. Um, he teaches a focused concentration on symbol and then the removal of that symbol. So he suggests uh, a randomly suge- uh, selected tarot card. And the purpose of this is to, to, to remove the consciousness or your consciousness from the present, right? So I feel like this is an extra step that sort of hinders the process. Also his process of de-scanning, which again, if you read his book, you'll, you'll see it in there, it's all in there, requires uh, focused consciousness, which could trip people up and is i feel antithetical to the point of uh of this type of meditation so if you need some sort of mental cleaning agent uh 
to begin with, imagine your mind as um, the center of a flowing stream or a wind tunnel, gently carrying your consciousness away. And slowly start closing that up into nothingness. A lot of old Zen teachers say that you should just begin with focusing on breath. Um, So that's another thing you could do. Just like think about your breath. Furthermore, if you want to learn to enter the state of gnosis anywhere, anytime, I believe it might be more beneficial to learn to do it without anything external right from the start. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's my perspective. Uh, Then again, I've been working on meditation for like 10 plus years now. So I might have a little bit of a bias there. Sounds like you're starting to uh, beef with Krieg as well. I, it, I think we're all beefing with Krieg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I just I think I just beef with ceremonial magic practice altogether. With that, let's talk about Zazen briefly. Let's talk about Zazen briefly. Uh, I'll try. Um, so this is probably one of the hardest forms of meditation, but I personally think it's one of the most important and rewarding. It comes from Japanese Zen Buddhism. Uh, Within Zen, there are two major schools. There's uh, Rinzai, which focuses on mind uh, consciousness, um, focusing on koans, you know, stuff like uh, what did your face look like before your parents were born or if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it or no no one's there to hear it doesn't make a sound. And uh, Soto Zen, which focuses on the method of, and I'll try and pronounce this properly, Shikantaza. It's been a long time since I took Japanese. Yeah. Which basically means uh, silent illumination, um, sometimes referred to as just sitting, which I like. That's a lot easier to say than Shikantaza. If you're uh, an English speaker, yeah. <laughs> Granted, that's, that's fair. That was very centrist of me. <laughs> so I've been meditating for some t- somewhere between 10, 12 years, um, but I've only been using Soto Zen for about eight of it. Um, I never studied under a master teacher. So before I run through the whole bare bones of the practice, there's a couple great books that I learned from that I want to recommend. There's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind mm-hmm. by Suzuki, and this is kind of considered like the classic Zen text. So it's really good. Jump into that. Another one that I personally fell in love with aspects of, but not entirely the guy's whole perspective, is a book I already mentioned, uh, Hardcore Zen by Brad Warner. Really cool book, especially if you're into like punk rock and counterculture. Uh, He comes at it from a really approachable way and is even anarchistic at times, which I love. Um, He does rail against psychedelic substance use at a couple points in the book, which did rub me the wrong way. I do think that, you know, psychedelics can be a distraction if you think you're going to take them and suddenly become enlightened. That's not how it works. I mean, there are elements of culture that have that sort of no substance mentality. Yeah, so like straight, straight edge culture and stuff. From straight edge. Yeah, yeah. But so so does a lot of like uh, uh, just like Zen mm-hmm. and um, like hardcore uh, meditation teachers will say like doing any kind of substance will get in the way of your practice. And I can see that perspective. All that aside, I think it's a really practical guide to Zazen meditation and Zen thinking in general, especially for someone that has really like either no experience or a very bare bones understanding of what's going on. Also, it's just a really great autobiography. So if you like autobiographies and you're not interested in any of this stuff at all, it's a fun little read. Hey, nice. So 
to practice Zazen. Step one, we're going to talk about steps here. Find a nice quiet spot, preferably one where you can look at a blank white wall. Any blank surface will really do. Uh, You want to sit upright in the posture that we've mentioned with your spine straight, legs crossed, chin slightly tucked, eyes open, slightly downcast. Yep. In Zazen, they recommend your hands be in the universal mudra, which you can Google pictures of, but basically it's your left hand and fingers resting inside your right hand with your thumbs touching. So the space between your thumb and fingers makes sort of an oval or egg, if you like. Mm -hmm. This rests in your lap right around your hara or tanjun point, um, which is about two finger widths below your navel, essentially a little bit above your belly button. And your elbows should be at your sides with enough space uh, between your elbows and your sides that you could hold an egg between your elbows and your body. That was told to me by the only Zen master I ever met when I took uh, Buddhist traditions and we went to a Zen temple in Hawaii. Beyond that, with your eyes open, stare at a blank surface. I think Kevin already mentioned that. Take long, deep breaths. um, Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Make sure you are breathing all the way down and filling your lungs completely. And think of nothing. That's it. Just sitting there, thinking of nothing. And when a thought comes, acknowledge it, but let it pass and go away. Eventually, you will slowly um, start to eliminate your thoughts and nothing will come. And eventually you can enter a state at or enter this state at will. And uh, it'll take a ton of practice, but supposedly eventually you can do it like that. Now, we should mention, as I've mentioned before, some people recommend starting out by counting breaths, like an internal focus or Krieg's descanning thing. Krieg. <laughs> anyway, you will eventually have to eliminate this too in order to achieve this this real emptiness uh-huh. of mind. I think it's better just to start out with the goal in mind and work towards it and give yourself permission to not be so good at it at first. You're going to fall asleep the first couple times. That's just what happens. Lucky you, you're not going to get hit in the back of the head with a bamboo stick, but there is no shame in doing what you got to do and taking baby steps to learn the way through this. Today's episode is brought to you by the Six of Wands. Upright, the Six of Wands represents success, public recognition, progress, and self-confidence. Upside down, the Six of Wands represents private achievement, personal definition of success, fall from grace, and egoism. So you got a little bit of interpretation in there. All right, I think what is visualization and why is it important is our next step on this little journey. It is. We've arrived. So visualization, uh, pretty essential to a whole host of magical and occult practices, especially this concept we call pathworking, which we should probably do a whole episode on at some point. But basically, it involves the construction of a narrative into which the magician injects themselves. Yeah, and we're absolutely going to do that episode. I actually have a brief skeleton of it worked out already. Um, but as Carol discusses in Libra Null, it also lays the groundwork for sigil work, um, usage of words of power, and a variety of forms of auditory spellcraft as well. Sure. Uh, you might think of visualization as generating an imaginary image, but that's only really part of it. Uh, Phil Hine discusses in Condensed Chaos, uh, you really need to generate a gestalt, like a whole experience. Yeah, so this includes all of the senses. Excuse me. 
smell, taste, sound, hearing, and of course, sight. Um, we'll get a basic example of this in a little bit with our relaxation and meditation ritual. Sure. So for visualization practice, one thing you can do is take an image and contemplate it for a long time. Uh, take in everything you see, colors, shapes, patterns, perceived textures, everything that's there. Uh, then you put the image away and you close your eyes and you rebuild it in your mind. Like I have on my wall uh, a picture of a giraffe wielding a cutlass, wearing an eye patch, riding on a shark over a galaxy background. And it is incredible. Sounds and awesome. it is the most awesome. I'm and visualizing I can, it right now. There's a lot to unpack in there, which makes it particularly good for visualization practice. Um, Krieg, who I'm beefing with, uh, talks about this in his meditation process with a method he calls scanning and de-scanning. Uh, we did not do this with our meditation practice. Uh, we're going to share with you, but it might be worth looking into as a visualization practice. Uh, Buckland, on the other hand, uh, suggests something similar, but instead of putting the picture away, you tear it in half, and then you keep one half and use your mind to rebuild the other half. I can't do that with my giraffe riding a shark in space because it's actually a shower curtain uh, and is something like seven feet tall. So that's not super practical for me for this, but if you have smaller scale imagery, that's a, a really powerful tool. Totally. Um, you should definitely start with simpler images like geometric patterns or uh, a picture of the front of your house and then work your way up to more complex ones like pictures of people or, you know, an aerial view of the Capitol building. Uh, eventually, you'll probably want to work on visualizing 3D shapes, imagining sense, sounds, flavors, physical feelings, environmental variables, basically. Uh, I personally tend to go for more abstract stuff because that's what my head wraps around better. I don't usually do as much architectural, um, although I do find that some of the like infinite staircase type pictures are really good for this because there's mm -hmm. not really an end. You can just kind of keep going until it's time for you to be done. Yeah. And I think, um, where architectural really comes in is if you start getting into stuff like controlled remote viewing and stuff like where you're actually trying to project your consciousness somewhere else. Sure. Um, so that's less of like a, uh, like a path working or magic kind of thing. And more of like, a I don't know, it's still magic, but something else, you know what I mean? <laughs> like free form scrying. Yeah, pretty much. Um, which we'll get into a little bit in our next episode. Sure. Anyway, Phil Hine outlines uh, a number of excellent exercises for this in Condensed Chaos, as does uh, Peter J. Carroll and Lee Bernal. Uh, the important point here is to remember visualization is not just about visualizing objects, but uh, stimulating imagination or hallucination or manifestation uh, with each, and eventually um, many or all of the senses. It's uh, good to practice to spend a week working with each sense, or even longer if you can. So you could um, expose yourself to a real example of the sense, like bite a lemon or listen to a pure tone or chord and then replicate that using only your mind. Um, make it as real as possible. And this can be done with pretty much all the senses. You can for visualize me personally, colors. That's a pretty easy one. Yeah, What's definitely. Up? Now, for me personally, 
I run a lot of tabletop RPG games. And when I'm constructing a scene, uh, when I'm building a city, when I'm uh, putting my player characters in an environment, I tend to spend a bit of prep time doing some of this work because it helps make the scene more real. Uh, and, and that's a really good way to test how robust your visualization is, uh, where you can describe to the satisfaction and grasp the imagination of other people with the thing that you are imagining yourself. Uh, so that could be a really cool way to, to implement some of this uh, as, as like a general day-to-day practice as opposed to a specific working or specific exercise. Yeah, definitely. I, I do the exact same thing um, as well. Um, hey, so I guess that brings us to a point where we need to throw you some practice. Yeah, let's um, do a practice. We'll do a, we'll do a, a ball of light meditation practice. Yeah, and this is actually a pretty common one. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people out there have have heard of this already. Like, you can find it in self-hypnosis and self-help books and stuff like that. So we're going to leave you with a little specific technique listing here. And they're, yeah, uh, as mentioned, kind of all over the place. Um, So here's what you do. You're going to get into whatever position you're going to use. If you're planning on meditating, sit up. If you're getting ready for bed, lay down flat. Um, If you're like me, you're going to relax in like a couch or a chair because that's how I do best. Um, Make sure wherever you are, it is comfortable and that you can sustain whatever position you're in for as long as you want to be meditating. Um, and then you close your eyes and you visualize a glowing ball of light. Yeah. Some people prefer white. Mine's actually a uh, golden yellow in color. And that's because when I first found this ritual, like back when I was 13 or 14, I sort of skimmed it and didn't read it thoroughly. And actually the text says a white ball of light, but I went with a golden one and I've used it ever since. Uh, usually I have mine start at the top of my head. I think mine's like a like a indigo-y purple because I think that's the best color. And cool. I'm an optimizer. I like things that are the best. So <laughs> mine is the best color. Um, and what you do with that little ball of light that you're imagining, you visualize it slowly passing through the length of your body. And as it does, the light fills areas it touches with that warm, relaxing glow and it loosens your muscles, it eases your pain, it fills you with serenity. Uh, and as the light reaches the end of its path, let it drift off into nowhere and just sort of vanish. Uh, if there's a part of you that is not completely relaxed, send the imaginary ball of light back to that bit and, and let it keep on working for a while until you feel that experience across your entire body. Yeah, definitely. And uh, later on, as you continue to practice this, you can add other sensory elements to it. So you can have it uh, produce a pleasing scent or a, a you know a, a relaxing sound, something like that. Maybe it very quietly plays John Philip Sousa. <laughs> yeah, whatever works for you. Whatever works, and and that's it. Uh, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, I guess. Um, 
that's the ball of light meditation. It's really, you imagine a ball of light, it moves around inside your organs, you feel nice and relaxed, and then it goes away. Yeah, I use it right before I go to bed almost every single night, um, often with a, you know, a nice hit of cannabis to give me a good body buzz and nice relaxing drift off. And, uh, you know, usually by the time I get to the end of that little ritual, I'm out like that. I imagine that's great. Unfortunately, I have to skip the hit of cannabis lately because federal service, but that's okay. It still works. Someday we'll legalize. That would be lovely, but we'll get into that in another episode. Oh, yes, we will. Oh, yes, we will. This brings us on to what we're going to call Gnosis and Intro. With a G. Uh, There's a G in Gnosis. There is a G in Gnosis. It's more like Gnosis. Gnosis. Something like that. Um, We will go way more into this. And we keep kind of dancing around this idea of Gnosis and chaos magic and stuff. And we promise we'll get into more detail later on. We're really just trying to lay a a foundation, some groundwork for people who might be interested in the occult generally and aren't really choosing a path yet. So before we sign off today, I want to briefly touch on Gnosis. We're going to do a brief rundown. And then uh, then I think we have one more practice for you. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I don't remember. If not, there will be one next episode. Yeah, that's true. All right. So anyway, Gnosis, it's a a mental state of being reached when all internal dialogue has been ceased. It is a state sought by Zazen meditation, and it's also referred to in the Indian traditions as, and I'm probably going to pronounce this terribly, uh, Samadhi. Samadhi. Samadhi? Samadhi. All right. In shamanistic practices, it is also... I could um, be wrong, by the way. I could be absolutely wrong. I just like if correcting people. If you speak people. Sanskrit, please uh, send us a correction. <laughs> or Hindi, if you speak or Hindi, anything conveniently yeah. relevant. Sure. Um, it's also uh, called trance in a lot of shamanistic practices. Again, that's like a, a Western term for it. So, you know, if you are practicing any specific type of shamanism, it probably has a different name. Um, in chaos magic and modern Western magic, it's just referred to as gnosis. The word gnosis itself uh, comes from the Greek. Anything with the GN at the beginning probably comes from Greek, um, where it means knowledge, not to be confused with Sophia, which is wisdom. I don't know how easy that would be to confuse. There's, there's not a GN in Sophia, but... Keep an well, eye I think the idea is like uh, confusing knowledge sure. and wisdom. They're not the, they're not the same. They're thing. absolutely not the same. But do keep an eye out. The most common usage of the word that people are generally familiar with comes from Gnosticism, uh, where it refers to uh, knowledge of humanity's divine nature, which they've decided is the only way to achieve salvation. All right. Well. Some magicians use uh, the word gnosis in a multifaceted way uh, in which it refers to the magical state of consciousness, but also a path to liberation from reincarnation, sort of like the idea of fulfilling one's karmic duty leads to moksha in Hinduism. Um, Peter J. Carroll points out in Libranol that the state of mind is fundamental to the practice of magic. Internal dialogue and desires have to be ceased in order to stop the ego from interfering with the will of the magician. So 
you got to you got to shut it all down so that you can exercise your will efficiently you unify your entire personality and brain structure to a single purpose and there can't be yeah. crosstalk for that so on that note, check out that uh, Arc Trader Blue Flukes uh, Guide to Chaos Magic where he invoking talks about invoking the soul, the soul yeah, and stuff like that. Yep, yep. That dude does wacky stuff. Anyway, there are yeah. two primary routes to Gnosis. The inhibitory path can be achieved by silencing the mind, uh, Zazen, trance, uh, physical exhaustion, fasting, deprivation, uh, low doses of psychoactives. And then the excitatory path, uh, which can be reached more by working the mind up into a hectic state uh, while focusing on the single objective, the single will. Uh, this can be done through intense emotional work, physical pain, exhaustion via drumming or dancing, uh, overloading the senses, chanting, sexual excitement like peak orgasm, um, mild dose of hallucinogens sometimes hyperventilation can be used in a pinch yeah and um i think in the satanic bible anton levey talks about um using like certain intense memories tied to specific emotions to work yourself up into sort of like a, a hyper emotional state related to the type of magic you're working sure. on internal but conditioning we'll, yeah we'll get to that when we actually do our episode on satanism at some point we like those folks yeah all right as carol points out aspects of these practices can be found in all of the world's major religions and the minor ones really because they're all butted off of the local shamanistic practices of the region um you know before our major world religions came about there were groups of people that had spiritual beliefs and we you know kind of all branched out from there um, you can see this pretty clearly in the spread of Buddhism from India across the rest of the world. The difference between what the Buddha taught and what is practiced in Tibetan Buddhism or Zen um, and how the idea of bodhisattvas stands in direct contradiction to the concept of anatman, which is one of the original and core uh, separations between what the Buddha taught and the idea of atman or self in Hinduism. Uh, you can also see it in the adoption of various local practices and belief by Christianity uh, as it spreads from uh, Rome throughout the rest of Europe. Uh, the most fundamental examples are probably the various holidays that are co-options of pagan holidays like Christmas, which is from Yule, and Easter, which is kind of somewhere between Ostara and Beltane, I hmm. guess. Yeah, and honestly, we can trace all these stories back even further to the first known human human civilizations in Sumer, the myth of the dying god, which is another thing we'll do an episode on at some point. But the Easter story can be traced back to the Sumerian myth of the descent of Ishtar, uh, recorded in cuneiform tablets over 4,000 years ago, which is pretty crazy. It is some time ago. Yeah. So we'll definitely go into more detail on Gnosis and... Um, pathways to it in a future episode it's something that you kind of personalize to yourself in terms of actual gnosticism i think my partner's dad went through a gnostic phase maybe we'll look into that i don't know when we get to actually talking about the execution of magical ritual it'll be essential for us to do some dedicated discussion on that magical frame of mind yeah absolutely um and we will do that 
which I think, unfortunately, dear listeners, this brings us to the end of our episode. I think that's all the time we have. Next week, we're doing a basic primer on divination, which is communicating with spirits or asking the other world for advice. But for now, go forth and practice, my friends. Expand your minds, keep good notes, and drive the world instead of letting the world drive you. So mote it be. So mote it be. Thrice bound and done. Until next time, listeners, fools march on.